Training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pandola Project. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Pandola Project. And wouldn't you know it, I'm your host, Matt Pandola. And I'm the other guy, Jake Parker. We are here. And Matt, you're about to get on an airplane. Where are you heading? I'm actually driving, Jake. Oh, why? I'm going to Colorado. That's not so bad from Reno to, what, Denver? Yeah, basically Denver. It's the Denver area. I like driving, honestly. It gives me some time to just think, to listen to podcasts. Yep, a good podcast time for sure. It just gives me some downtime. I don't love flying. If it's drivable, I'll do that instead. But it's really about my schedule. If I was going to take a flight out, I'd have to leave at a specific time that didn't really work for the day before. I have to still work with some athletes before I leave. And that's just the job, man. So it'll be a rough one, but I'll stop and and take breaks and take naps if I need it. And it just kind of works out that way. So I couldn't really get a flight that worked anyway. Stop and smell the flowers, man. It's okay to take a minute. I think that's funny, too, that your long road trips are like, you're still going to be thinking about, okay, here's what I'm going to do when I get back. And I have to read this book before my next client. Well, yeah. And I even have voice memos that I constantly do. I'll have my own voice memos that I'm going to listen to along the way about what I'm developing with Bobby. So it's uh, fresh in my head when I get there. And I'm a little more productive. So that's not bad time spent there. And there's always something new that I see along the way. So I, I love driving our countryside. I've never myself done it, but I've got friends who have shown me pictures. It's gorgeous from here to Colorado and just being in Colorado. That's a really interesting place. But you are going not for a vacation. You are going for work. You are getting yourself prepared to meet with Bobby McGee. He's the head coach for the U.S. Olympic triathlete team, which is quite an accomplishment. Congratulations, Bobby McGee. And you're going to work. You've got your notebook. I'm looking at it right here. Big three ring binder with all these pages flowing out of it. And that's the theme of today's podcast. This theme is over delivering, doing more than is expected of you. And that theme is central to the story of Matt Pandola. That's who is going to be doing most of the talking today because it's his story. Who could tell it better? Yeah, guys, I'm just sharing my story today. In part, I have had listeners and also clients, people who know me, say that they love hearing about what I've gone through and it inspires them. And I should talk about that on the podcast. So I told my story. I know that everybody has a different journey. They have a different process to their own success. My hopes are that listening to my story will help your process and your legacy. And just, I want to reiterate that climbing the backs of giants along the way, meeting the people I have, has made all the difference for me. I wouldn't be where I am without those people. In today's story, we talked about how I had trouble learning with ADD, and that was difficult for me in school. And an example about what you'll learn today is how people did help me along the way like Mr. Ellis, who was my anatomy teacher, and literally sat down with me at the cafeteria while I had an hour off during my study time and pointed out how muscles were actually working 
while I was running. And that allowed me to understand anatomy better. That was my initial introduction into anatomy. A class that I was failing initially, I ended up succeeding in and it really resonated with me, ended up becoming a huge part of my career. Started with Mr. Ellis. And that story of Mr. Ellis, that's a great example of someone over-delivering, doing more than what was expected of them in order to benefit someone else. And that is why we are doing today's podcast, Over Deliver. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the story of Matt Pendola. Matt, we are here today to talk all about you, and I know you get enough of that in your day-to-day life, but this time we have a purpose behind it, the history of Matt Pendola and Pendola training specifically. How did it become what it is now? What is it now? And Matt, I'm going to let you kick off this story. Where do we begin Pendola training? Yeah, so first of all, don't stop the podcast. Don't start searching. I promise it'll be worth it. I'm not that boring. I do have some tales of the tape that I think will help everybody listening today. And my intent in telling my own story is to help you, the listener, with your own goals and realizing that you're not by yourself when you struggle, when you have doubts, and also understanding that eventually you can come out on top or you can have that better life that you're looking for. You just can't give up. And myself, I can tell you, I learned this from people that had already done it that I really looked up to. So I climbed the backs of giants, but just remembering that if they could do it, I could do it too, and knowing that I wasn't going to give up. And that was the similar trait that I had that these other giants in my life had too. So that inspired me along the way, even when I didn't have much yet. And I think that's a really resonating story, Matt, because if someone saw you now for the first time, they would see a pretty fit dude, a happy guy, everything in the world he could want. And that wasn't always the case. Like most of us, you did not come from much and you built a lot out of basically willpower. Yeah, well, no, thanks. I appreciate that. You know, I put things into perspective when you said I didn't come from much. I think a lot of people would probably agree that I had more adversity in some senses. I grew up in government housing, good part of my life. We relied on government funding and help there so that we could kind of get through the week in our housing that was subsidized because my mother didn't make much. And so without that, we wouldn't have had a place to live. So those things I'm very grateful for as well. I don't just look at it as, well, this was happening to me. I also realized that that was happening for me. So I had opportunities because we're lucky enough to live in these United States where there is that kind of support through our government. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Sure. And did you realize that it was happening for you at the time or were you kind of beat up about it at the time and then you realized the benefits later as you gained some wisdom? Because that would be pretty insightful for, you know, a teenager looking around at his place and compared to his friend's places or whatever it was. No, that's that's a really good point. I had a big chip on my shoulder when I was younger. I have a lot of patience and a lot of respect for people going through harder times, realizing that 
of course, it's a little bit more difficult, especially at a younger age, to see into the future and to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So no, I had a pretty negative attitude, especially when I was much younger. Junior high school, the thing that stands out in my memory, that's about the time when other kids were coming in with new clothes and I was wearing the same pair of pants, but growing. And so those were called high waters back then. And I would get constantly made fun of, and we didn't have money for new clothes. Sometimes I got a little bit upset and I wasn't necessarily like looking forward to going back to the new school year, seeing what everybody else was going to wear that first day of school. And I remember my mother, she took the hems out at the bottom of my pants and then bleached them, the jeans, so that they looked like a different pair of jeans. But everybody knew right off the bat and they could tell what my mother had done and they just made fun of that even more. So sometimes I struggled with acceptance or I worried that I wasn't going to be accepted because I didn't have those cool new things. But that didn't last forever. I ended up realizing that that wasn't everything. And maybe it forced me into maturity a little bit sooner. And I don't regret that. Obviously, that's where my foundation started, realizing that I was going to maybe have to work a little bit harder. I was going to have to really put my head down and grease those elbows and just get to work if I wanted to get out of that situation. I used to dream about one day just having money, being able to go to the store, buying the clothes I wanted to buy. Nothing extravagant. I wasn't thinking about a mansion. I was just thinking about being able to buy food, clothes, not worrying about money so much. I didn't even think about going on vacations and things like that. It was so abstract to me. And in fact, the first time that I ever went to a dentist, that was when I was in the military. I hadn't gone to a dentist before that, and we couldn't really afford that even. So you were a full-grown legal adult Yeah, I before was, you saw a dentist. Yeah. But of course, you know, the military was a bit of a stepping stone for me in that direction where I was going to get some support. Again, I was going to be able to rely on the government to help me move forward in my life. And so I'm happy I did that as well. I wasn't necessarily going into the military because I wanted to be the next Rambo, although I'm sure. You did. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, of course, I would have loved to be Rambo, but I went into it out of a need. And I ended up figuring out as time went along that if I kept moving forward, if I kept taking steps forward in the right direction, that I could have a better life. And I started seeing some of those things come into fruition for me as I started accomplishing more. It kind of started with me with running, and that's why I'm still so attached to it. The first inkling that I had that I could maybe have a better opportunity in life was through my running. Especially if you are a frustrated teenager, that's got to be a really great outlet. I know for myself personally, I will still use it as an emotional outlet. If I'm frustrated or stressed out or just angry, I will go for a nice, you know, easy run. And then as I keep going and I get, I'm thinking about all of these things that are making me mad, I'll start going a little faster. And it's a great outlet. Yeah. And when I was first in junior high school, it sounds uh, like a crazy story. I actually mentioned it with Matt Balzer on our podcast before, but I did have that first coach that 
my little gang that was hanging out. My neighborhood in Providence was kind of rough. And I don't know if I would call us a gang, but all I know is that when I was with these 10 kids or so, I was less likely to be selected or beat up after school. If I'm walking with 10 kids, they're not really going to mess with me. So I just started to kind of hang out with this group of kids, I guess you would say a gang. And we would just do silly things like, you know, we'd pee on somebody's car and think that was, you know funny. And I've done it. Did, have you yeah, done I that? have literally done that. Yeah, I regret it now. But you know, at the time, kids are awful, man. We were terrible. And yeah, I've, I've peed on a car, I've peed in a car. <laughs> You've got me there. I've never peed in a car before. <laughs> so I remember watching Mr. Gray, his name Mr. Gray, and he was running by. He was just this thin guy. Now I'm 46. At the time, he was in his 40s. He was a master's runner. Turns out he was the master's New England champion. He was the king of the roads for masters. And to us, he just looked like this skinny dude running by. And we didn't understand why he was wearing those short running shorts. And we Hard thought, thing to understand. Yeah, right. We just thought that that was incredibly geeky. And so my friends started throwing rocks at him and pegging him. And uh, instead of running away from us, he turned around and started running towards us. And so he eventually caught me. I felt like he was chasing me for miles, but it was probably minutes. And he told me I could join the team or he was going to basically report me. And I knew what my dad would do there. So I decided to join the team. And the rest is really history. I happen to have some ability in running, but it was also just something I could do. Even joining other sports, some things that other kids didn't need to think about, but I couldn't afford sometimes the gear. I couldn't afford the lessons. I couldn't afford the camps, but running is something that I could do just right from the get-go. In fact, I started running in my school tennis shoes. I didn't even have running shoes, but was able to do that in cross country. I bet that coach knew what he was doing too. He saw you as a case that he had an opportunity to help you. He didn't have to do that. No, he didn't have to do that. And in fact, he started meeting me early before school even started once. So at the end of my first season, I actually happened to come in second in what was called the Mayor's Day cross country race. And the kid who beat me, I'd put in a lot more time in training than me. He was older than me. My coach told me, if you're willing to work hard at this, I think that you can get pretty good at this. So I did, and I started to focus on it. Then he started even meeting me early in the morning before school to get in some running. Some of those days were pretty cold in Providence in the winter. And that's when I started learning the callousing, the industriousness, the enthusiasm, putting layers on and getting out there and getting my run in. But that's just when he could meet me before he went to work. So that following year, I was able to win the Mayas cross-country race and also set a record. A few months later, I ran against the kid who was the number one runner in the state for junior high school, mind you, but and I beat him by three minutes, something a lot mm-hmm. of time. And then that's when they said, look, if you want to really have an opportunity at this, I would look at other schools because the school I went to, they didn't really even have an organized program. So my grandmother, she lived in Hartford, Connecticut, and there was a coach there that I was able to get in touch with. He was national coach of the year that year. 
So I moved to my grandmother's, started living with her, and went to high school in East Hartford, Connecticut, and ran there. Kicked off the rest of my running career. It got serious at that point, right? I was really dedicated at that point. I I wanted to get a full-ride scholarship. I wanted to be a professional runner. I wanted to be the next Bill Rogers, mm-hmm. like he was my hero, or Billy Mills, and guys like this. And ultimately, I did make a lot of progress in the first couple years, but I was overtraining and I did end up dealing with a lot of injuries my junior year, which ended up kind of taking me out of the sport for a while. So the Army ended up being a good option for me to where I could get myself back to good running shape, but uh, try out for the Army. You graduate high school, you ran all through it, and then you, you decided to sign up for the Army. What did you do there? Well, going into military wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. It was during the Gulf War, so I was able to get some good experience as an EMT paramedic. Um, I had to do some field work there, and then I was training when I could, and eventually I started to run some fast enough times where I got noticed. But it was really more my path getting ready for the Olympics. I knew that I wanted to be able to run for a coach that was in San Antonio, and I was currently stationed in Fort St. Houston. So I tried out for his team. His name is John Purnell. So I ended up training for his team. Now, because it was a golf war, I was just in for two years, 22 weeks. It was a shorter stint. So I just chose to move on and then fully focus on my running. Making that development team, that was huge for me at the time. And I was still young. But what happened next, I still kind of regret in some ways that I didn't do more with my running, but I was working a couple jobs. I would get up in the morning, do my running, go to my first job, which was just bagging groceries mm-hmm. at Kroger's. And, uh, Very common. Yeah, yeah. And nothing wrong with that. But then I would go run again do my second workout. I was doing more than 100 miles a week at this point. Then I would have to go and I was bussing tables and washing dishes. And we would usually get done around midnight. So then I would repeat the whole thing again, getting up the next morning about 5 a.m. to get in my first run. And that went on for a few months until eventually I was just so beat up and so fatigued. Mind you, everything I talk about nutrition these days, I was eating Taco Bell, only getting in food when I could a lot of times. Like at Kroger's, they would have food that was going to spoil. I would try to take that with me, right? Sure. And now when I have the opportunities I do and when I can buy steaks and I can buy food, I don't have to worry about those things. It just puts it all into perspective for me, but I wouldn't take that stuff back. And that's what today's podcast is more about, about understanding that things are happening for you. At the time, this was happening for me because I needed to grow. I needed to learn. I needed to appreciate what I had and what I could do with the right work ethic and if I kept moving forward. And so I ran this time trial in the 20th mile of this time trial where I'd been averaging about 5.18 a mile, these guys all just finished in, you know, the 440s. And I just realized, man, I'm not going to make this team. 
I'm not going to move any further forward, maybe another four years and I could give it another crack, but I wasn't ready to do that. I wasn't willing to do that. I didn't want to wait another four years. So at that point, I decided I was going to move on. That's got to be kind of devastating at the time when your goals are so heavily set on that. Yeah, and I was depressed. And so this is another point about being vulnerable and letting you guys know that I've had some tough times and I've had a lot of self-doubt. And I, I was very depressed after I gave all that up. And I just started working full-time as a waiter. Obviously, I was more depressed because I didn't feel like this was a great legacy for me. But everybody's got to put in their time. Yeah. And so I just did that for a while, but kind of a little bit lost. I was still in San Antonio and I decided to go back home. And when I went back home, I got a job roofing. That was actually a good opportunity. I made good money for not having any skills. Mm -hmm. All I had to do was take shingles, put them on my shoulder, get them up to the roof for the guys that actually knew what they were doing get back down as quickly as I could, get another set of shingles, get back up there. There were five guys on the roof. I had to keep them all busy. So I was moving, but they paid me pretty well for a kid. Yeah, and those kinds of jobs, I've done drywall and metal framing and things like that. I kind of miss it sometimes. I realize now that I wouldn't want it as a career, but every once in a while, I'm like, man, that wasn't that bad. Again, you know, that's just kind of looking at, I'm so fortunate that I have a job that's paying me well, I'm not going to complain about it. And the last time I worked, I'll be honest with you, I got really scared because I fell off of the roof trying to move fast. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I hit a scaffold that was only a few feet down and that saved me. But I just thought to myself, man, like I don't want to do roofing anymore. I decided that I was going to go back to waiting on tables, and at the same time, I was going to start to go back to school. Now, school had always been difficult for me because I do have ADD, and growing up, back then especially, there wasn't the kind of maybe attention paid to disorders like there is now. Yeah, did, did you even know what it was? No, no, and my teachers would just kind of take it as me not paying attention, uh, being disorganized. A lot of times my report cards, like when Matt focuses on something, he does really well, but he tends to lose focus easily that I still remember that report card saying that. And I got in a lot of trouble for that at home. So I ended up looking at school as something I had to do, but I didn't want to do. And I never put a lot of focus into it. I just figured I wasn't very bright and I wasn't going to be a doctor one day. But you know what? Even from an early age, I enjoyed reading and I enjoyed writing. I was always drawing something. I was always doodling. So I decided that I should focus on writing a little bit more. The school had a paper, school paper, that I ended up writing for. And I was just one semester in, but I wrote my first article about AmeriCorps and more specifically the National Civilian Community Corps. They were doing a project that I wrote about. So I decided to apply for it. And it was actually pretty difficult to get an opportunity with the NCCC, but probably helped I had a military background, but also I had always the gift of gab. So I remember when they called me for an interview, 
I was just talking my way through the interview, not really having any clue about what I was even getting myself into, but I was pretty good about talking about it. Mm -hmm. So they did select me. And at the time, I was at a crossroads. I didn't know if I should take this opportunity. I wasn't expecting to get it 100%. But my uncle, another person who helped me along the way, my uncle Frankie, he said to me, you know, Matt, you can really help to change some lives here. You can really do some good. How many tables are you going to wait on to get bored of that? So I thought to myself, why not? What am I really losing here? This is, this is an opportunity. I'll just go do it. So I did. Probably the best move I ever made. AmeriCorps, uh, National Civilian Community Corps, was in its early years. And it's a little bit like the Peace Corps within the United States, it's not exactly that, but that's kind of how I, I relate to it as. We worked on projects with unmet human needs, environmental projects, education, and public safety, those, those kind of projects we did. And we would basically fill a need in the community, and they would apply for our team to come in and help with a project. So that's what I ended up doing for the next two years. And that's the kind of work that can give you such a good perspective for how good you probably have it compared to the communities that you're going to be working with. Like, what did you end up doing with these people when you actually went on projects? I had unfocused energy. And for the first time since my running really ended, I had now more of a purpose. I can go to these projects and it mattered. It mattered what I did. It mattered how hard I worked for these communities, and I really loved it. Within a few months, they did open up a spot for a team leader, and I was able to get that spot. Again, I think I had the gift of gab, but I got that spot. I took over my first team, and we ended up going to a lot of projects that challenged me, but also opened up my mind and my heart to some of the people in these communities that were struggling much worse than I ever had. And it made me realize how fortunate I was to even have the opportunities I did in my life. Yeah, and that's probably one of the greatest lessons that you can get at any age in your young adulthood is to learn to take things not for granted because I think the average American teenager grows up taking things for granted whether they have a lot or a little but then you get a little bit older you work with some people who could really use help you'll you'll notice how much you complain we went to this one project that I'll never forget we were supposed to be working with kids at this school and I specifically worked on English as a second language with some of these kids. Now, I didn't speak another language, so I thought, well, how is this going to work? Mm -hmm. But the teachers ended up being great. They talked to me about how I could communicate and make it work. And before long, we were really fast friends with some of these kids that I was working with. And of course, you know, they spoke enough English, but really it wasn't about that. It was more about the position they were already in in life which again made me realize how fortunate I was. So this one kid, Joaquim in particular, he was in fifth grade. He had already had somewhat of a record. He was in a gang. He was doing some drugs already. Mm. This was a problem that I was thrown into really, but I wanted to get to know him and see what was going on. So we walked home 
after school. I always grew up, even in government housing, we had heat. We had something to eat. Maybe it wasn't what I wanted to eat, but I could make something and it could be warm. When we walked to his home, first of all, we had to walk the long way because the street that I wanted to go down, he told me we can't go down that street because the gang owns it and you don't want to walk down that street. That sentence coming from someone in fifth grade is pretty unsettling. Exactly. Then we finally get to his home. This was a condemned apartment building. Great. And we go in there. There's no electricity. There's no light. There's no nothing. And his mother is in there doing drugs when we went in there. She was literally shooting up, mm. not exaggerating. So, of course, I ended up reporting all this. Put it in perspective for me. Wow. I did not have it so hard. Mm-hmm. The nice success story to Joachim is he did end up getting the right support. Once the school understood what was going on and Child Protective Services got involved, I was initially kind of sad about it, but we kept in touch and he ended up graduating from junior high school a few years later. And he was actually one of the top kids in his class. Wow had really turned around because he had gotten into a good foster situation and he had the right support now and he was a really bright kid. So I felt like, wow, he now has a better opportunity at life. But man, do I appreciate the upbringing I had as compared to that. And a lot of different AmeriCorps stories like that and C stories when I worked in communities where I realized I used to have a chip on my shoulder, like I had it so bad because I didn't have new clothes the first day of school. It wasn't that bad for me. It could be a whole lot worse. So I think that's when I really started seeing things differently. Well, I'm glad to hear that, man. And I bet you got a taste of what it's like to be involved in helping someone in that example with Joaquim. And I am wondering now, is that what sparked this idea to get into training? Yeah, I knew I wanted to get into working with kids. At the time, I even thought about being a teacher, but it wasn't exactly the right profession for me. Obviously, coaching athletes, coaching kids, this ended up being what I loved doing, and it did lead into my eventual career. But at that time, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. So when we got out of AmeriCorps, I applied for a hotshotting job. And my second year in AmeriCorps, we had a fire and disaster relief team that I led. And the biggest reason why they chose me for that is just because my fitness scores and they figured that I could get the team ready. He looks strong. Let him do it. Right. Yeah. And in reality, that was my strength. I also lucked out that the other team was led by who's now one of my best friends for life, Allie Goldstein. And she was incredibly bright, organized, all the things that made us look good, both of us. So I kind of took over a little bit more of the ass and elbows part of it. And she took over more of the administration part of it. We were good um, partners in crime and, and we had a great run. When we finished that up, I had enough experience now where I could apply to be a hotshot. Now, those jobs were hard to come by. 
especially because I didn't have a lot of experience yet, I got my start with AmeriCorps on that team. But it's also who you know. And the fire marshal from Flagstaff had been the one who applied to get our teams in the NCCC to come and work on doing some thinning projects around the homes there for Urban Interface, which is where I got some experience running chainsaws, felling trees. So it gave me a little bit of a leg up. Of course, again, I had EMT paramedic in my background, things like that helped. And just overall putting in my time with AmeriCorps helped, but I still had to wait and see what the answer was gonna be. And because we had so many people applying, it was months until I found out. So then I hit another rough spot where after AmeriCorps, you don't really make money in AmeriCorps. I've heard. Do it. Yeah. So I hit another rough spot there. I ended up living out of the back of my car. I was working. I actually worked in San Diego in La Jolla. Really nice restaurant. I actually wore a tux in the restaurant. But the irony was that I didn't have a place to live. Kept it on a hanger, hanging from your uh, your door handle? Yeah, I couldn't afford first and m- last month's rent, all of that. So what I did was I slept out of my car, but I got a gym membership. And I would shower there. Smart. Change there. Yeah. And so one of those gyms actually was open 24 hours at the time. So that's where I got my membership. So it wouldn't be weird when I was sleeping in my car in the gym parking lot. They just thought I was working out or something. And I ended up working about five months in San Diego. And then I had a friend of mine who said she knew somebody who needed her car driven cross country. So she lived in New York and she needed her car there, but she was from San Diego. So I took her car drove it cross country, stopped in Flagstaff along the way, gave the crew boss a cup of coffee from his favorite coffee spot that he liked. This is what I heard through the grapevine from the fire marshal. Nice. He just kind of smiled and he said, uh, well, I would have I would have told you sooner, but there's no way to contact you, but you do have the job. So I got the job. Then I still had another three months or so before the fire season was actually going to start and I'd have a job. So I went back to waiting on tables for a while and I just trained really hard. And I got into Flagstaff hot shots on the crew that first year. Whatever happened with the car? Oh, I, I drove it to New York. Okay, good. So you didn't keep it? I was just thinking like a lot of people in that situation would have just kept and stole the car. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually drove it to New York. I did drive it to New York. And of course, you know, Chad Sweet, who ended up becoming my business manager, mm-hmm. he actually lived out in New York at the time. So I stayed with him for a few days and then got a flight back and waiting on tables until it was time to go. I remember getting ready for the job. I was finishing up my shift around 11 o'clock. Then I was getting off that shift and going out for my run to get prepared for the season and maybe finish my run around one o'clock in the morning. And so again, it was just making that decision that I'm gonna be ready and I'm gonna over deliver. I wanna be more than ready, even though it's my first year and that paid off It didn't take long before my fitness showed up. My lack of experience was evident, but the crew boss really liked how much work I had put into my preparation for the season. 
So it wasn't long before I was what they call the lead P, which is the head Pulaski front of the line. And a few months after that, I got an opportunity to be on saws and I was a swamper just kind of learning more about how to cut line with a saw. And by the end of the year, the opportunity came up. I was able to come back the next year as the head saw boss. So that put me into a position where I could now get a full-time permanent job with the Forest Service. I ended up in Aiken, South Carolina. I learned to run heavy equipment there. And I was also continuing doing some hot shotting in the summers. I would go and help out with the crews. And so I, I had about two years there where I was doing that. I have one really amazing story that I want to share again, where this is another perfect example of how we take life for granted or we can. We go to the first fire in Aiken, South Carolina that I was on. And there were a couple of people on my crew of color. And we stopped after the fire to get something to eat. And they stayed in the engine, the fire engine. Oh, I see. You know what I'm going to say? Yeah. They even didn't want to get out. They were too afraid to even get out. But they also weren't even allowed to eat in this restaurant. Jeez, man. We're not talking about in the 1940s. We're talking about 20 years ago. So we stayed in the engine. I stayed with them. We ate MREs. And that was just an eye-opener for me once again. What is going on here? And I was just shocked, really, that this was even happening within the Forest Service. So I reported it the next day. I just didn't see that that was right. So they ended up deciding it was best for me to move on to heavy equipment, to dozers, because I'd kind of burned my bridges with those uh, engine guys. And I, I didn't lose any sleep over that, honestly. I met this guy. His name was Alan. <laughs> Alan had been on his own since he was about 14. Now, let me tell you this story. I'll just never forget it. Alan had a really tough upbringing, and he was constantly abused as a kid. His father was an alcoholic and just just beat him up all the time. And sure, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have had those kind of experiences. Well, Alan finally got strong enough and big enough when he was about 14 to take on his father and protect his mother and his siblings. He was the oldest. So he throws his father through a screen door and tells him, don't ever touch them again. Mm -hmm. Alan didn't even go to high school. He was already done with his schooling and he had to work because his father didn't work. Oh, right. He had to work. So he went and worked for his uncle. He was laying bricks. He was masonry kind of work. He gets back that day. His father had shot his mother. His younger sister was sleeping in the bed with his mother at the time when this happened and just stayed hidden. Another kid ran from the house, his brother, and was shot at and shot. And then the father ended up turning the gun on himself. Sorry mm -hmm. to get so dark here, mm -hmm. but... This just puts things into perspective. So Alan joins the army, lies about his age, somehow figured out how to do that. Smart guy. Smart guy, no education to speak of, got his experience with heavy equipment in the military, 
put in, I think about 20 years there and then transferred over to the forest service. And in the meantime, sent checks home to his family and took care of his siblings mm -hmm. from 14 years old. Whoa. So that's the kind of guy that I was around, thankfully, for a couple of years. Good example. And again, putting things into perspective. And I think like if you can tell just all these things happening for me, I was able to build and grow and learn and develop from. So I ended up moving to Truckee. I got an assistant engine captain job there. I was supposed to take over as captain. The captain there was going to retire. And that's when I really realized like, this is not my passion. This isn't for me. I just worked hard and got these opportunities, but it wasn't what I wanted to do forever. For you listening, if you're not familiar, Truckee is a small town in California, just west of Lake Tahoe. And I ended up moving to Reno. It was close enough by, and I saw an opportunity to get into the fitness industry. And when I was working for the Forest Service, the main thing that I really enjoyed doing the most, what I always seemed to be in charge of the physical preparation and training, because that's what I was good at and I loved it. And one of the guys said to me, why don't you do that? You love it. You're always reading about it. You're always taking courses. Like, why don't you just do that? And I didn't think I could do that for a living, really. Back then, too, you got to remember, I was a distance runner. So back then, it seemed like all the trainers were like these super buff dudes. And distance runners were all super scrawny dudes. Right. And although I did add muscle and strength for firefighting, hot shots still need to be pretty lean so you can go and go and go. Some of our shifts would be 36 hours long. And you didn't want to be that bigger guy. You wanted to have less body fat maybe as well so that you're not overheating. And it was paid off to be a little bit leaner but I was still was bigger and stronger than when I was just a marathoner or a 10K runner. But again, I just didn't really look the part for one. And the other part that was hard, quite honestly, I was looking at getting into a career where I was going to be making less without benefits. Didn't know anybody in Reno. Where do I start? So I decided to get a job at 24-Hour Fitness. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time the crew boss that was talking to me about my opportunities for the forest service. I told him that I was going to be retiring from that. And he just thought I was crazy. Yeah. And my family thought I was crazy. And I started over again, really at that point. So back to living out of my truck and being a trainer. So that's part two of this segment where I'm at in my life right now, but I had nothing again, really at that point. You must have liked it a little bit to go back to that lifestyle living out of the car. <laughs> I don't I don't know uh, if if I was ready for that. I I had gotten comfortable sure working hard, but I always had housing because of the forest service and being a full-time permanent, I always had the ability to have a roof over my head and sure I wasn't making a ton of money, but you're also working so much, you could save most of what you were making. Mm -hmm. You get a lot of hazard pay over time. So it wasn't out of the question for me to be able to bank 20, 30 grand from a fire season. And of course, then you have your slower times, you use some of that. But you know, I always had more money than I, when I was growing up and I wasn't quite ready to be without it again. 
So it was a real test for me. And at the time, my mother, she has passed away from cancer, but my mother needed some help financially. So I gave her that help, of course. That was without question, but that kind of cleaned me out. And so I had no more savings. So I was back to where I started in a sense. For good cause. For good cause, yeah. So then it only took a few months of working at 24 Hour Fitness. And don't get me wrong, if there's people out there listening that are trainers at public gyms, if that's your calling, it just wasn't mine. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the culture that I wanted to be a part of. So I decided I need to be an independent contractor. And again, everybody was telling me it's so hard. It is. It is hard. Yeah. To find clients and to be able to figure out some way to live until you have enough clients, that's really difficult. And I end up taking a job at the Gerber Baby Factory, just stocking Gerber food. And uh, that was kind of tough, but I got through it. In the meantime, though, because I had some connection to running, I started to talk to more and more athletes at the time that either wanted to start running, train for a 5K, train for a marathon, or just maybe even lose some weight. So I gave free training at the track, and it was up at UNR. I guess I wasn't really supposed to be there, but it was free. Mm -hmm. So it was public service. I didn't get paid for it. And I did that for about six months. But over that six-month period, I slowly started getting more and more people showing up. So I had a healthy number of people coming. And I also did group hikes, even if you don't want to run, but if you want to bring your family members to this hike, started getting to know more people. So in the beginning, my clientele was built off of more of the general population, a lot more people who wanted to just lose weight. And I initially met them at that track or on those hikes, and I turned that eventually into a business. So getting my first 12 clients was really difficult. And along the way, we interviewed Les Nesbitt here, but he was my first client that I got at 24-Hour Fitness. He ended up following me, and he was with me during this whole process. So here's the first story about climbing the backs of, of giants. But he ended up telling me, look, if you really want this, I can see that you do. You just have to keep working at it. You just have to keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't stop. Don't give up on yourself. Don't take that other job like at UPS. I mm-hmm. had a chance at one time to work at UPS. You know, Don't give in to that. Just keep sacrificing. Do what you have to do. And I promise you one day it's going to work. And he had done that himself with his construction business, and he came from nothing. Very successful guy. Yes, and we'll let you listen to more about Les on his podcast. So not to create a sob story here, but my own father, we'll just say, is not present in my life. And Les became that father figure for me. I learned so much from him, but more importantly, I had somebody who believed in me no matter what. And again, that's where I feel like most of us need that help along the way, if not all of us, really. And I wasn't by myself anymore. I had less backing me up. And even if it just meant going to his house and having a barbecue and sharing a beer and just having that support, that meant everything. And he was always that person. Along the way, I did 
end up getting those 12 clients over about a six month period. And then from there, from 12 clients to over 50 clients happened very quickly at that point, just word of mouth. I had now enough clients talking about me and I realized that I could start up my own gym. So that's when Pandola training came into fruition about 15 years ago. What was that first building that you rented space from? Yeah, well, that's over at Longley Lane, which funny enough, I'm now just in the back of that building. And man, did I make so many mistakes. I didn't have any experience in business. I ordered so much equipment. So I got a partner who could fund me. And that sounded so great, right? I'm going to be able to buy the equipment I need. I'm going to, and sure, you'll get a split of the percentage of the profit. But long story short is I ended up having a lot of growth in a short amount of time. But then everybody here listening knows that the economy went south about 10 years ago. It sure did. And it was about that time that I had a couple big challenges come my way. I had 14 trainers at that time. The facility at Longley that we had built into 10,000 square feet, fully equipped. And then I had also started a another smaller facility within Collin Club. And that's where I met you. That's right. I was working the front desk, folding towels. At that time, it was the owner of the building over at Longley that just did the math and realized I had put so much money into building that facility out. The AstroTurf alone cost me 20 grand to put down. And I had at least conservatively, I say, it was over $60,000 that I couldn't take with me. It was glued down to the floor. It was on the walls. It was the showers that I put in the locker rooms that we built, all of that. And he knew it. So overnight with my new contract, I was now paying 25% increase in my overall rent. Huge. So then the economy's going south. So guess what? Everything kind of flipped on me again, and I really had to start all over. I finished my leases. Once that was done, I was back to zero again. So then I ended up realizing I had to rebrand myself. What I loved doing the most was working with people, helping people get better. And when I had all those trainers and all the overhead, my main job at that point was really managing all of that. And it's not what I loved. So again, seeing it as an opportunity. So now I was clear of these leases and eventually just made my way back over to where we're at now. Much smaller facility, less clientele, but I have FaceTime with all of our clients there. And we were able to get back to the basics. And that's when the real opportunities started to come. I'm curious, after having lived out of your car twice, built up a successful business, and then to have what happened to so many people in the mid-2000s is that recession that just knocked us all down on our asses. How did that feel when you also had to rethink your strategy? It was tough. And again, I would say that I was feeling burnt out. I was feeling depressed. I really thought about quitting pretty seriously at that point. And I also had another situation going on where my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, Erin, 
she and I were planning on starting a life together, but I had nothing again. And we're looking into buying a house, starting a family, and I have nothing. And I remember Erin has always been such a rock in my life, but she gave me that tough love. And when I was doing a little bit better financially, I just spent money. Mm-hmm. I, I, was, I was like, man, I'm making money now. I can pay my bills. So we would go someplace to San Francisco, but I would get a really nice hotel room or something like that. And she would always say like, you sure you want to spend this much on a hotel room for a couple nights? Is it really worth it? And I just felt like I work hard. I deserve it. And that's not really her style. And so at that point, we ended up, of course, getting married. We have our beautiful daughter, Mia. But Aaron told me, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it together. And I've got to give you a little bit more structure, a little bit more discipline when it comes to finances. And so that is really what turned things around for me, too, having Aaron come into my life and having that kind of rock there. So I definitely owe her a lot as far as where our financial security is now. Shout out to you, Aaron. Love you. So again, just another example of people coming into your life for the right reasons. I was so fortunate to find somebody who believed in me, but also had a good head on her shoulders and gave me some structure when I needed it, gave me some tough love when I needed it. And um, from there, we went into our new brand of business, which all started with the idea that we can have better culture. So now that's kind of what we're known for. That's what this podcast is about. Opportunities started coming very quickly. Within the first year, it was obvious that we had made the right move. We had a very low overhead. At that point, at least we had paid everything off. So we at least did that along the way, which was great. And we were able to put more away. We were able to start investing more for our future, for retirement, for Mia, those type of things. And I just, Aaron took over the finances and I just did the work. And when she would give me my allowance, sure, humbling, like I never had an allowance. I'd always just spent what I wanted to spend or could spend, I should say. And now I had an allowance, but it worked, it's working. So now what I want to reiterate, though, is because I had had the experience building that first gym and having all those clients and the trainers, that's not all for nothing. Even though I had lost it all, essentially, and even gone into the red a bit, I was able to take that experience and realize that it was very valuable that I went through that learning how to run a business better, but also I had just learned a lot along the way. It's only a mistake if you fail to learn the lesson. One thing I will say, even from day one, is I was never greedy about if I was spending money, I was also spending money on my education. I was going to Athletes Performance Institute, which wasn't cheap. I was doing the mentorships there. I was constantly putting it back into the facility. And so that did pay off because now I had all of this experience with athletes, but also what I feel like was a good education. I ended up going through getting my LMT license. I ended up 
putting a lot more time into interning with guys like John Hodges over at Nevada Physical Therapy, which now I'm in partnership with him and Dr. Albertson over at Reno Orthopedic Clinic. All of these things don't just happen. I had some value to offer and people started to see it. But I will tell you that I strongly believe if I had to do it again, I would have spent more time just shadowing, interning, mentoring before I got started with all of this. I think it takes a good few years to start to get good at this and then another few years to where you start to really realize how you can program things better. All this comes with education and experience. Experience, I think, being the most important part, but educating yourself along the way. And I think 10 years is about the mark where you start to get in enough purposeful practice. So it's not a coincidence that about that time is when I started getting some other opportunities, like with Bobby McGee. So I'm excited. I'm going to go see him next week. Yeah, you're just getting ready to leave soon, huh? Yeah, and I showed you my notes for Bobby. Yep. I've been working hard at getting our progression programs ready so we can discuss what we want to do with that, but we'll be releasing programs next year in 2020. So for those of you that don't know, Bobby McGee, he is the head Olympic triathlon coach, and he's a remarkable guy. Just his story, that's, well, he'll get on the podcast at some point, Jake. You guys can really hear about his story, but he's from Africa. He wasn't allowed to leave the country for a time. He had to coach within his town, and he produced an Olympic athlete. Uh, Just crazy story about how somebody can do a lot with a little. So now here he is as the head Olympic coach for the U.S. triathlon team. And he calls me up one day. He tells me he really likes how I got thoracic rotation with an athlete off the bike. And he wants to know more about what my thought process or my progression planning is for athletes like this. I couldn't believe it was him calling me. He had written a book called Magical Running. He's also considered to be one of the top running coaches, uh, certainly in the U.S., but even the world So it's not like I didn't know who the guy was. I believed it was him when he called me because of his accent, but (laughs) (laughs) I ended up talking with him on the phone for a good hour that day. And by the end of it, he said, well, I do have a training camp that we're doing this weekend, but of course that's uh, not enough notice. I'd love to set something up with you, but this um, triathlon season is going to be really busy. So maybe we'll set something up for the next off season. And I thought, no way, I don't want to lose this opportunity. That's too long away. So I just jumped in my car, my truck the next morning and drove to Colorado, met him for the training camp, met him for the first time. And we became fast friends and we've been working together ever since. So, you know, again, just another example about how opportunities that present themselves are there for you, but you have to see it as well. I missed a lot of opportunities in my life, but now because of all the experiences I've had, how much I learned from other people along the way, like Les and my wife and Mr. Gray, my running coach initially, I started to develop that sense of this is my time. I'm going to take this chance. I'm going to go do this. 
And I think that that is what really turned my career into something more of what I feel like is what I want my legacy to be. And you also have to put in the work so that you are ready when that opportunity meets you, because if you are not, it will pass you by. So I don't want to compare here, but Jake, you were one of my trainers. I was. And be honest, did all of my trainers, when we were kind of in our sweet spot, everybody was making good money before the economy really went south. My trainers were definitely making a good living, but when things went south, that's when it started to all fall apart. Trainers started to leave. They went to easier opportunities, I think. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to maybe pay the percentage, even though a lot of the time and education and, and even overhead I was paying was, in my opinion, worth it. But it was just easier for them to go pay that one gym $400 a month well, that, flat fee. Yeah, and that other gym probably doesn't expect as much as you do. I remember that being very tough, having to justify my programming and all the other trainers. They, they had supervision under you because your name was the brand, and so you cared about what was being done. And so I'm not trying to compare, but it made me realize at that point that if that's what they needed to do, God bless them. I'm not going to be mad about it. I mean, I was initially because I put a lot of time and money mm -hmm. into every trainer mm -hmm. and getting those trainers set up with a lot of their, especially their initial clientele before word of mouth got better for them. That I feel like was a lot of hard work on my end too. But I got over it and mainly just realizing that, look, this is a part of my process and I have to be grateful because the best way to learn is to teach. And I had all that time where I was constantly teaching trainers how to become better trainers or at least give them the structure of my systems, which made me only reinforce what I had to know more. So I just consider that to be my main education. So I'm not mad about it. And you skip ahead another five years and the people who really love doing it and it was outcome over income are still doing it. And that's where I think we begin to separate ourselves. If you're willing to put in the time and it's really more about the outcome to you, the income will be there. I was just talking to one of my clients this morning, Bill, which we did our second Zotu workout. It was really hard, but a lot of fun. And we get done, we have some coffee, we catch up, we talk a little bit. And he was telling me with his business, he had gotten pretty big corporations at one point in his business, one of them being Disney, another one I believe was the Hilton. And he was saying that he had six Christmases in a row that he had to work and talk about a guy who paid his dues. And now he's retired early. And I just, I think that so many people, maybe I'm even a little guilty sometimes of just thinking, wow, you've got so much. He's a great guy, but he worked his butt off for it. And he put those sacrifices in. But even though his income ended up being pretty substantial, to him, it was all about the outcome. And he just cared so much about doing a good job and over-delivering. It was never okay for him to give a subpar effort, not even one day. And there's so much we can learn from that. 
because I would say talking about where we're at today, what the mentality is when we go to work. What do you think the main problem is with our workforce today? I see a lot of memes about complaining about Mondays. I don't want to go today. I'm tired. Oh, the alarm clock is your worst enemy. And just how about all of the texts that are going on, the messages that are going back and forth, the amount of time spent on Facebook and Instagram during the workday. Mm-hmm. I'm just here to say that that's not over-delivering, is it? No. A lot more you could be doing with that time. And so I don't think that I'm especially gifted as an athlete, and I don't think I'm especially quote-unquote smart, but what I do think is that I have a work ethic that I have committed to over-delivering as much as possible. And sure, there are times when I put in a little bit more effort. There's times when I need to breathe a little bit and I'll put in a little less effort. But in my mind, I can sleep at night because I know that I've done everything that I can to get to the point where I'm at now. So we're now at a point in our facility where we've been booked up for a good few years. And I can say that part of the reason why our culture has gotten better and better and better is because we are picky about what new athletes we take into the facility. Part of that hard work, part of that over-delivering led to that opportunity for us to be selective and not just take anybody who can pay. That's the first part. And the second part to me is just knowing that I'm going to do everything I can to be a better version of me so that my athletes can be better versions of themselves. And that's a big responsibility, and I do take that seriously. And I just think that even if you are bussing tables like I used to do, do it to the best of your ability. That's what allowed me to end up getting the waiter job and then the head waiter job. And no, I didn't want to be a head waiter for the rest of my life, but that gave me another opportunity in my life. And I guess that's where not, I don't want to be overly critical, but, but I think a lot of times we can just focus a little bit more on over delivering with what we're getting paid to do, but not worrying about how much we're getting paid to do it. Hmm. I'm going to turn this around on you, Jake. A lot of people have already given me so many compliments about this podcast, how professional it is. In fact, I'm going to just say it. We have a meeting that we have to get to after this. Somebody who's been listening to our podcast and just thinks the quality is outstanding, which I know that that opportunity that we might be getting with this potential sponsor is because you have been over-delivering. I appreciate you noticing, man. Yeah, it's it's not all as easy as the final product may seem. When we finally do publish an episode, yeah, there's a lot of hours that go into that, and there's a lot of research that goes into it, and those are the hours that I put in that the listener does not see, but I'm happy to do it because I believe in it and because I'm passionate about it. So in this case, I'm happy to over-deliver. Jake, you were one of my trainers for about six years, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned before it wasn't always easy working for me. Mm -hmm. I do hold a certain standard. I'm not saying that I have the best way of doing things, but I do have a certain standard that I expect if you're going to be a part of my culture, and you were a part of that for a long time. So part of what really helps is even when you're just 
talking about your role as a producer, one, I have a certain budget that I have to keep for this podcast and expanding my brand. And you know, my wife will not let me go past that Not budget. one cent. Not one cent. So I will say that you get paid to produce for Pandola Project, but I'm not paying you enough. I, I know that. And mm. you are- I could exploit this. Right. And well, eventually, I'm sure you'll cash in one day. One day. And that, well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Is that I expect you to, just like I expect to cash in more one day with all the hard work that I've put in, but I don't expect it to just come to me. I, right. don't, I know that I have to keep working towards that, but I also know that it's not the most important thing. I mean, at the end of the day, I can pay my bills. I can feed my family. I can send my daughter to college. And I apologize, my wife and I, I should say, can do those things because we are definitely a team. And there's nothing more important in the world to me to be able to provide for my family, to spend time with them, to have a family. I never thought I would even have these things. And all I know is that when I was just studying, working hard at these opportunities, to be able to move forward and to get a client, right? Just get a client. Just one, please. Just please, so I can stop working at the Gerber <laughs> Baby Factory. All I know is that, no, I didn't know one day that I would have this amazing family and I would have all these amazing relationships because I want to reiterate that, sure, I have clients, but man, they're my family mm -hmm. too. They're, they're definitely my second family. They mean the world to me. And I am just so proud of the culture in the family. And that process is what makes life amazing. So even here and now, if I never got one step further in my career, I'm pretty proud of it. And that, funny enough, gets to the point where, yeah, you, you are getting the income, you are getting the opportunities, the outcome is there, but it didn't start with that. And I think about how many times I hear people wanting opportunities before they've really put in the work. Like I get to work with some amazing people like Bobby McGee. And I know a lot of people in my industry have talked to me about like, man, how did you get that chance to do that? Or you were able to work with such and such an athlete. And it's like, man, yeah, I worked my butt off for it though. And I'm not trying to escalate myself by saying that because I believe anybody can do what I've done or what you've done. Anybody can do these things, what Bill has done, what Les has done. It's just, are you willing to put in the work? Are you willing to put in the effort? Extra effort. Yeah. And that's where I'm so passionate with my athletes, especially my high school kids and saying that of course, we're trying to get you better for your sport. And if you want to go on to compete in college, that's great. And that's, if that's a part of your process, your goal is my why now. That's my mission. I'm going to help you as much as I can with that goal. But that's not the end game to me. The end game is that these kids grow into people who know how to work for these things and who do it for the right intrinsic reasons. They're not doing it for the medals. They're not doing it for the titles. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because it matters and because it's a part of a legacy they can be proud of. But 
that turns into successful careers. That turns into the ability for them now to provide for their families and to help the communities. And I know so many clients who I think of as my mentors who help out this community so much that it blows my mind what they've given. And yet almost nobody even knows because they're not the type of people that even need to be recognized for it. So a lot of times their philanthropy is actually anonymous. And I can tell you, I'm just going to sell them out and say that like Les does this kind of stuff all the time where he buys a bunch of bikes for kids for Christmas. And he doesn't care that anybody knows that. He doesn't put his name on the bike. Right. And, you know, guys that I know, like Rick Revelio, they're constantly giving back to the community. And sure, he does well for himself, but he also is elevating those around him and he's giving other people opportunities where they might not have it. And a lot of times people don't even know this is going on, but I want to be able to work hard, but also have the opportunities to help other people even more. So I think that's the main theme of what we're talking about here. We're talking about over-delivering. And speaking of over-delivering, we got to roll, man. We've got a meeting we've got to get to. Matt, I, uh, I appreciate you sharing your story. I Sorry I didn't contribute too much to that one, but I felt it was necessary to let you have the floor, and, and that was your story. We'll get to mine someday. My story is not that unique. There's a lot more examples out there and quite honestly, better examples out there than mine. Sure, Matt, there are other examples out there. You know, no offense, you're no Nelson Mandela, but you have this over deliverance and that is such a universal lesson. And so you listening, whatever you're doing even if you don't really dig it, and the example of busing tables was brought up a couple times today, maybe that's not what you want to end up doing forever, but you can still find something within it that it can teach you that will later serve you so that you can serve other people. Yeah, that's well said, Jake. And let us know. Send us an email and let us know how you've overcome something or where you met opportunity with the work that you had put in for it. Send us an email to Pendola Project at at gmail.com and the pendola project is on facebook give us a like there and if you like the show as always we appreciate you writing a review on your podcast app whatever that may be thanks for listening everybody